Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. One of the worst fears of being a parent is losing a child. I think it happens to everyone. It might be just for a moment in a shopping mall. Your heart skips a beat and then there is the relief on reconnection. Kirsten Alexander has written about just that in her debut novel, Half Moon Lake. Welcome and well done, Kirsten oh, Alexander. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm sorry to put a sad story in your life. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, well. Australia is not the location of this book. Where is Half Moon Lake? It's set in Louisiana in the mid-1910s. The time is hinted at before it's actually disclosed. You know, at the first reading of it, I thought, oh, this isn't set now. There's eucalyptus and cocaine as a headache remedy. (laughs) (laughs) And then when there were horses pulling buggies... And the dissatisfaction of the North giving Negroes so much freedom. So when did you set this book? It starts in um, 1913, uh, just before the the Great War, the First World War. And the reason for that is this is inspired by a true story that was set around then as well in Louisiana. And I thought the story really has to stay in that time because there's so much about that story that just wouldn't work in the modern era with phones and the internet and... I don't know, everything. The book starts with the Davenport family holidaying at Half Moon Lake. They appear to be an ideal family. I I guess they're ideal. They're they're wealthy. They're wealthy enough to have a holiday house and to spend their afternoon sitting outside while someone serves them lunch. Um, It looks idyllic, but not every family is as perfect as they seem. Well, even um, Mary, the wife's father, never played with her but here we have the husband the father John Henry out there engaging with his sons he's very inspired by the uh, fresh scouting movement Mm. yes um, which did encourage young boys only boys at that point to go outdoors and um, find their world in nature yeah and he's also shows affection to his wife Mary, you know, they hold hands, they they share many interests, and uh, they're three children. Who are they? Um, they have three three boys, and I'm terribly tired, so if I mess this up about my own book, you can correct me, <laughs> <laughs> and I will take that. Um, but they have three boys, uh, George, Sonny, and the third, whose name has gone right out of my yeah, brain. Well, we've got George, who's seven, yes. Paul, six, <laughs> and Sonny, I should know that, shouldn't you I? You should know that. <laughs> and, you know, Mary, also being a very um, interested mother, she's actually very nice to her coloured servant. Not nice, nice, nice with a with a caveat. She's she depends on her, um, and she treats her as a as a part of her her service she's, industry. She's, she, Esmeralda is always in Mary's shadow, and Mary, yeah. I think, is always very happy for that to happen. So, how did all of this change? Well, the youngest son wanders off um, with the other two boys with family permission. You know, brought from scouting. scouting. Yes, yes, scouting. Go off into the wild and discover discover your life. Um, but two boys come back. The third never comes back. And again, this is based on a true story. And so a search ensues for this boy. The search lasts for several years. Um, but when they find him, that's actually when the problems begin. Well, this is this is interesting because he's. We know he's lost on page mm-hmm. four. 
And by page 99, this is where part three starts, and it's called Found. And I'm thinking, what is Kirsten Alexander going to fill the next 200 pages with? <laughs> <laughs> well, ah, I, I kept turning those pages in with great interest. And it was because one of the reasons was bringing in the media. Who is Tom McCabe? Tom McCabe is a reporter with one of the very many local newspapers. There was a different media landscape at the time. Uh, There were an awful lot more newspapers. There were an awful lot more reporters. And they played a slightly different role, I think, than the media does now. One of the things was that when newspapers first started back then, there was an enormous amount of advertising in them. And that started to... to, um, delineate who would read which papers. The papers almost, maybe we're used to it now, I'm not sure, um, divided on class lines yeah. and the advertisers would, would, would pick their people. You know, who's, who's got money and, and who, who doesn't? Who are we targeting? Tom, um, Tom worked for the local paper and he, he, was, um, he was a hustler. He mm. wanted a story. He didn't necessarily care entirely about the truth. He wanted a good tale for his editor. Mm. So... He knew that to get a good tale, he had to talk to the people inside the mansion. Now, the family has moved back from the Holiday House. There are 40 reporters mm-hmm. outside this mansion, but he gets the eye of Esmeralda, the, the black maid, and he's there at the gate with his dog. And I'm going to get Kirsten Alexander to read from page 43. Okay, I am putting on my glasses and uh, (laughs) hoping I don't mess up my own words. I haven't read this for a while. Um, But today, after Esmeralda had beaten the carpet clean, she glanced towards the front gate. Walter stood on his hind legs, his front paws sliding on the iron posts. Tom shouted out, Walter says good morning. And Esmeralda, wonderfully, came towards them. Why'd you give him a man's name? She pushed her hand into her apron pocket. Walter's nose twitched. I've never met a man as big-hearted as this dog. Invite me into the yard a while, I'll tell you about it. Uh Uh-uh, no, sir. Esmeralda fed some biscuit to Walter, then stuck her arm through the palings to scratch his head. Well, now, that's something. Thank you. Thank you for what? In my line of work, it's important to get things right, Esmeralda, and you've corrected my belief that Negroes don't like dogs. You've been nothing but kind to Walter. Esmeralda straightened up. The man seemed to think his bluntness was endearing, or else it didn't occur to him to exercise the good manners he'd show a white woman. She thought, but didn't say, that there are beliefs about men like him too, beliefs that white men had nothing more substantial than a lead pencil dangling between their legs, that even the dumbest of them suffered the delusion they were smart, that they grew old but not up. Esmeralda turns into one of the major characters through this book and we're not telling why or whatever but it, it she was a character that I really wanted to read more about anyway so you've, you've definitely interested me in Esmeralda Tom McCabe does get inside the mansion how does he do that? Um, he he makes I, I guess what, what I would consider a mistake that, that journalists maybe then and now commit, of trying to befriend power. He didn't keep his distance. He befriended the family. He wanted to be inside their circle of, of, of influence and wealth and connection. So he, he, he lost his objectivity very early on in the piece. 
he actually went in and started reading uh, Mary mm-hmm. when she was so, so depressed. Started to just read to her. And one of the books was Tarzan of the Apes, which must have been <laughs> quite a book at that stage. <laughs> and uh, But the problem is, with a news hound, it was when he falls in love with his story. And that's exactly what he did. Now, John Henry, this is the father, offered a £2,000 reward What did this lead to? Um, Well, it was an awful lot of money at the time, but he was very rich and I think he was used to buying his way out of whatever problems presented themselves in life. Um, But this time it didn't work. It brought forth a lot of false leads, Mm. a lot of um, people who who were after his money who didn't really know anything, so it didn't deliver him his son, which he found frustrating. Very frustrating. It also took him to an, another aspect of life. You know, he had a factory, but his was fine furniture. He went to these other factories, and what did he see? Um, child labourers, which, uh-huh. which was very common at the time, and he should have known that, but his life was quite... Uh, he lived in quite a bubble, um, so he had to encounter, for the first time in his life, people without money, um, children from... from families who who needed their wages and um, a whole other side of his state that he should have already known about. It was one of the little kids there that said, your your son's probably be ta- been taken by a tramp. Mm-hmm. Why would a tramp take a child? Well, tramps at the time would often travel with children they found, or orphans or waifs, because people would be more sympathetic to them, offer them a meal yeah. or somewhere to sleep for the night. So while John Henry's out, you know, out sort of 200 miles, he'd go for a sighting to, to verify it. And Mary, where did she go? Uh, Mary went inside her own mind. She, yeah. uh, she stayed at home. And um, because it was a time when people were turning to occultists and spiritualists and, and uh, things other, she, she turned there for help to uh, mediums. Yes, clairvoyance. Mm-hmm. Um, now finally, this tramp, Gideon Wolfe comes into town with a young boy and the tramp is then put on trial for child napping and the most interesting court case ensures with the population being divided. They were divided because without giving away too much, again it fell on class lines. Um, the Davenports were wealthy and influential and so they had all of the people in town who mattered um, on their team, uh, but not everyone was convinced that, that the rich people had the right to this child they were laying claim to. So Gideon Wolf was on trial. He was the man that the judgment will affect, but it's also going to affect a man, the father, two mothers and a child. The, oh, the book's actually based on a real case. Yeah, as you said in the beginning, in Half Moon Bay. And were there two mothers involved in that? There were, and I have to be really careful talking about the truth because um, I've made radical departures from the truth and also descendants of the actual families are yeah. still alive oh, and right. that's, that's their story to tell, so I don't want to step on their toes. Yeah, so, But there were two women and one child. Kirsten Alexander and I are leaving out a whole part of the story <laughs> which has got to do with Grace Mills' fantastic side of the story too. But what I just couldn't believe about was the orphan trains that were around at this time. Orphan trains were a real thing, I did not make that bit up, um, that used to take children off the streets of New York City, primarily New York City, and send them down south where they would be um, adopted and used as... Um, 
uh, labourers essentially given to very Pollyanna. They would mm. they would go to to farms in the south and they would work and they would go to people who were not able to have children. Um, nowadays we wouldn't do it because the 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 potential for disaster is just terrible. And I hate to think what happened to so no. many of these children. And when you say so many, look, this, these orphan trains, they were around for over 50 years and there was over 200,000 mm. uh, mm. orphans that were rehoused. Phenomenal. Um, another thing that I, right at the very beginning is when everybody's looking for this young boy at Half Moon Lake, uh, well, they, heaps of people were out there looking and, of course, they were fed and all the leftovers were then given to the Negro men who were out there looking too. But they used dynamite to to blow up the lake and, of course, what came up to the surface was a lot of alligators. Yes. So they'd slit the alligators to check out the entrails and then sell off the skins. <laughs> they would, so they'd cut them very carefully. Those skins were worth a lot of money, uh, especially because at the time alligator handbags were uh, were quite the thing. So they were. I, I did have to look up, and it was gruesome. I wouldn't advise oh. anyone doing it. I did have to look up how they cut them so that they didn't damage the skin. There's a way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the research that an author takes into account. <laughs> that, was, that was gross, yeah. Um, so you've given us a, a story of contrast. There's the privilege and the prejudice. Having a job or being a tramp and, of course, being black or white. And really what it comes down to was the choices we make and the lies we tell ourselves. And as a Sheriff Sherman in the book says, choice is a rich person's word. And you give that final word to Mrs Billingham. Who's she? She is a friend of the Davenports who was with them at the time young Sonny went missing um, and she's, I guess I would say, part of the problem at the time that the, that the wealthy did try to buy themselves out of every problem and they do that right until the last page. The public disgrace, the mayoral election. No, Gladys, will not utter a word about this to anyone. We walk away. There is just so much in here about women and how it doesn't really matter what class you are. You have that maternal feel, as as fathers do with the paternal feel. I'm sure you know we John Henry threw money at it, and Mary just threw emotion. Oh, Kirsten Alexander, this is a debut novel, but you've really hit the mark on this one. Thank oh, you so much. That's yeah. very kind. And you had a few uh, rejections along the way, I hear. Oh, so many. So many. <laughs> I if there's anyone out there listening who's a writer, um, please take heart from knowing that uh, this took years to write. The one before this was rejected multiple times and um, possibly the next one I write will be rejected multiple times too. It's the way of the world. <laughs> well, I hope it isn't for you because you really have a knack for it. I've been speaking with Kirsten Alexander about her book Half Moon Lake, a bantam with a book which is a penguin in print. Thank you, Jan. Well, that provides me with a rather nice segue, book rejections, because my book today is about a journey, or several journeys, in fact. It's the journey of a book, and that involves rejection. It's the journey of an author. It's a journey into the past. It's a journey looking at self. The interesting thing is that all these journeys are somehow interwoven. The book is entitled Talk of Treasure and the author is Jane Carswell. So Jane, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Now, Thanks. it's the uh, title, the subtitle that perhaps uh, provides us 
uh, with a, a greater deal of clarity when it comes to uh, realising what this book is about. Words on writing, meditation and life. Might I suggest that the book itself is a form of meditation in words? Would that be too extreme? No, that rather appeals to me. <laughs> I hadn't quite had that idea myself, but um, it's certainly a contemplative book. Yes. Uh, and I think the... I think the thing is, David, when you write a book, uh, I remember seeing a, um, a writer say once, you think you're going to talk about one thing and you pick it up, but it's got all sorts of other bits attached. They're all connected. Well, I'd like to lay the foundation a little, if I may. You had been teaching in China and decided to put an account down on paper. Hmm. But this book isn't necessarily about China. It's about the process you went through in writing that book on your time in China. Mm. And there's only one um, reference, I think, in, in the entire book uh, that actually picks up on that diary that you were writing. Yes. It was... Um, the This is memoir, and it's the 10 years after I came back from China. I'd just been there, as you say, teaching for a year, and I came back with this voluminous diary, and I'd never written anything seriously. I'd loved writing, but never thought really I had anything to write about. And then I had this terrific diary all written on rice paper, and thought, oh, there might be a, a book in there. So it's the 10 years, and it, see, it took me 10 years to to write a readable book uh, because I I just didn't know how you did it. I thought that authors just, you know, they found something to write about, they sat down, they did page one and in page two and, you know, then they got through to the last page and then they I might do a quick check on on punctuation and spelling, but they just sent it away then to a delighted publisher. I thought that was the way it went. <laughs> but you, there, there's only one reference. Sally's obviously frightened by the ferocious traffic at the roundabout below the school and moves uncertainly within its warring arteries, but eventually finds the right combination of dusty buses for the journey, the second taking us over the Yangtze Bridge where the river slides powerfully beneath us, chillingly indifferent to the life that crawls above it. Now, there's that extract from that mm. diary, mm. but the book isn't... That, that's about the only one. And it's all about the process that the book has gone that, through. Well, I didn't want to put too much that had already, you know, been in the book because that, that people are going to see that. This is another book. But this business about Sally, I'd actually had to, to bin that. It didn't quite work. It didn't quite have um, enough for the journey of the book. But I thought, okay, here we go, here's a go, I've got another go, I can put in that piece that I'd rejected. So but, there it is. But it's about rejection of words, it's about editing, it's about taking on advice and all of these sorts of things. Yeah. So the book in many ways then serves in some ways as a metaphor for meditation. Um, are you able yes. to describe how that is so? Yeah, well, you've picked it up from a slightly different... Um, Corner for I had thought of it. I'd thought of the connection between things. There's a bit. Um, I love fishing, David. I'm crazy. About I was going to come to yeah, that eventually. Just, <laughs> uh, we won't call it an obsession, but by gosh, it's close. But there's a bit here where I'm talking. I'm talking about my fishing rod. We're all old friends. That rod and I. We lean on each other in wind, weather, and running tide. 
and together throw a line between two worlds. And the world down there, under the water, it's a mystery. Like the way down there place in the spirit where you meditate, or the underworld of the mind where writing's born. You wait for news of what's down there. Is there anything down there? You wait, and you wait some more. And what you've done, this notion of between two worlds, Mm. I mean, the fishing serves as a metaphor for the moving between two worlds, but the book does also. It's a form of connection in some ways. Um, You've got this quote, Learning about books was always easy. No temptation to skip my homework there. Books have a distinctive look to them and a smell that's all their own, each with its particular weight of words in the hand. And if you open their covers, they're only too happy to tell you about themselves. Learning how other people tick isn't so easy. All of those under-the-surface cogs and wheels we can't easily see and which their owners may wish to hide. And just as I read that, that under-the-surface reference, there's all these subtle sort of notions of slipping between something that's real to Mm. something that's more contemplative. Yeah, I think a lot of the book is about connections, and um, I love mystery. I love mystery. And um, I think, you know, mystery's all questions. And in all these... Things you're right. There's something under the surface. I mean, when you're meditating, you're making a connection between what you can see and what you can't see. Just two dimensions of of life. And I'll get to the meditation just in a little moment. Mm. But here's an an example of contemplating writing or the actual structure and sound of language. I have an idea. I open the file and find the paragraph, insert a new sentence in the middle of it, take out the one before, listen to the sequence, restore half the sentence by tacking it on to the new one, find a better adjective to use in the first sentence, and then ditch the whole sentence, because I realise I've said it before, take out a comma, change a full stop to a semicolon, and read it all again. Now, I never knew that grammar and editing could be so seductive. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad it's seductive. It's a terrible job, actually. (laughs) Um, but it does, you have to give very close attention. But it's it's almost, again, This I keep coming back to this notion of metaphor. It's what we're doing in life in some ways, looking at our experience and editing, going back, reflecting on it, maybe yes. changing a comma or something about the mm. way we went about it, and it then adds to our own profile. Mm. I think one of the wonderful things about writing memoir is that I mean, writing's all about um, writing about what's, you know, really paying attention to what's going on and then finding the words for it. And when you go back into your life, you give that attention to what went on that you didn't at the time. You were living it. And so, yes, the book is a form of meditation, which brings me to that notion then of meditation. So that journey of the book forms the spine, but it's all of these sort of divergent paths and ideas that come in as you go through that process. And that a lot of that has to do with your practice mm. of meditation, um, that um, you are, in fact, a, a Benedictine oblate. Yes. Would you like to explain what that is and this whole notion of meditation and such like? Yeah. If I just go back to the meditation for a minute, when I was in China teaching... I saw an old man, it was in a busy street, and he was standing with, under a tree, under the Huangjia tree, was the name of the book, um, and he had his eyes closed, and 
I didn't, he was perfectly still. I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know anything about meditation. But I found it terribly attractive. And, and I, I never forgot it. And when I came back to New Zealand, yeah, I, I learned um, to meditate. And I learned from two monks. And uh, I'd always been interested in monasteries, never felt any attraction to the uh, cloistered life. But uh, as an oblate, you take on the spirit of a, a monastery, which is contemplative, but you live it in an ordinary life. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was the connection there, really. But then what is the power of meditation? The effect of following this mysterious process twice a day for some years has started me. Everything looks so different now. Mm-hmm. So something's come out of this time in China, as you mm-hmm. say, the, the um, awareness of meditation, and then you've mm-hmm. practised that. But it's, in some ways, given you a different outlook. It has. I think it doesn't matter what sort of meditation you're doing. Basically, you're putting aside thoughts and words um, and concentrating, giving all your attention to one thing. And um, if you're, you know, your thoughts and your words have all the me, me, me and the I, I, I and the my, my, my. And once you put them aside, you get, a, you get just get a bigger picture. It's wonderful. Right? And, and in some ways, this bigger picture has then emerged in this book because... You, you sometimes diverge or add something uh, and meeting up with uh, students and such like that back in New Zealand, mm. all of which allow for that opportunity to reflect. But the book, the process the book is going through, the, the one uh, the, this is about, is mm. that reflection on what is working and what is not mm. and such like. Um, which leads me to another question about how this book should be read then because we're not following character necessarily or plot line so how should one read this book yes it's uh, (laughs) i realized that there are a lot of byways the reason i suppose why there were the byways was that everything was connected and i felt um well i couldn't just write about the writing process if i didn't talk about my friend who who saved me from despair on the way so it just didn't feel fair or truthful not to say that but how to read it yeah most books you you follow a narrative and readers expect it that's their quarry and they just and they they find out um and the book doesn't have that I think probably have to relax a bit. Just, just come with me. Let me be your companion. If you find I'm, I'm a bore, well then put the book down. There are loads of other books. But you could almost pick up this book and read a single chapter, yeah. because in many ways there's a journey that you go on in that chapter of a thought, um, and that one can look at, contain, contemplate, uh, and not necessarily need to know all the other elements, and yet you've still, as I say, got that spine of a, a book in development that is holding yeah. it all together. David, my daughter, read it, and um, <laughs> she's, she's not contemplative. She's about the most active, raging extrovert you could have, but very perceptive with it. And she said, oh, yes, she said, I enjoyed it. It's a dipper, isn't it? And I thought, well, if you liked it, you can call it what you like. But I think it is a dipper. It, it's something, it, it's just, I suppose I'm offering just my companionship. I'm not offering this uh, definite journey with a, a quarry at, you know, at the end. 
Um, there are little associations that I noticed all the way through, but it's what then connected with me. You make a reference uh, at some stage to religious texts or uh, John Donne or something like that. Yeah. And anyway, that's part of my background as a, as a teacher of English, you know, gaining something from another writer. And so you've drawn that parallel and I'm thinking, yes, we learn a lot from literature. So I'm able to go off on my own train of thought in some ways prompted by something you've written. Oh, good. Oh, that's great <laughs> if I can prompt anything. But I can really, really only offer, you know, the book offers my companionship, I suppose. Come with me. If you, can, if you can't hack me, well, then get another book. But in some ways that, that's more realistic than, dare I say it with another author present, a novel which has contained a structured story. Um, this is more open-ended. Mm, well, we need all the books, don't we, David? We need um, Kirsten's magnificent story. And there are all these things. I often think this book's full of, of questions, and I know there are people who like answers, but look, there are loads of books in the bookshops with answers in, if you want them. But the, the answer in many ways is, comes through our own meditation on our thoughts, our ideas and experiences. Mm. Well, the book is Talk of treasure words on writing meditation and life the author is jane carswell and it's released by transit lounge so jane thank you very much for coming in today thank you so much david and of course i was speaking with kirsten alexander about her book half moon lake now listeners to the program we're coming up to subscribe a week Ah. and 3cr is driven by energy and passion and you can tell with us it's reading and you know we come up, we turn up every week, and we would like our listeners to become our subscribers. We need your commitment. So nine four one nine eight three seven seven. So our passion can be reflected in your passion in supporting the station. <laughs>